Chapter 14 of Emily Bronte by Agnes Mary Frances Robinson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Wuthering Heights, its origin. A gray old parsonage standing among graves, remote from the world on its wind-beaten hilltop, all round the neighboring summits wild with moors, a lonely place among half-dead ash-trees and stunted thorns, the world cut off on one side by the still ranks of the serried dead, and distanced on the other by mile-long stretches of heath, such we know was Emily Bronte's home. And old, blind, disillusioned father, once prone to an extraordinary violence of temper, but now grown quiet with age, showing his disappointment with life by a melancholy cynicism that was quite sincere, two sisters, both beloved, one fired with genius and quick to sentiment, hiding her enthusiasm under the cold demeanor of the ex-governess, unsuccessful and unrecognized, the other gentler, dearer, fairer, slowly dying inch by inch of the blighting neighborhood of vice, one brother scarce less dear, of set purpose drinking himself to death out of furious thwarted passion for a mistress that he might not marry these were the members of emily bronte's household herself we know inexperienced courageous passionate and full of pity was it wonderful that she summed up life in one bitter line conquered good and conquering ill her own circumstances proved the axiom true, and of other lives she had but little knowledge. Whom should she ask? The gentle Ellen, who seemed of another world, and yet had plentiful troubles of her own? The curates she despised for their narrow priggishness? The people in the village of whom she knew nothing save when sickness, wrong, or death summoned her to their homes to give help and protection? Her life had given only one view of the world, and she could not realize that there were others which she had not seen. I am bound to avow, says Charlotte, that she had scarcely more practical knowledge of the peasantry among whom she lived than a nun has of the country people that pass her convent gates. My sister's disposition was not naturally gregarious. Circumstances favored and fostered her tendency to seclusion, except to go to church or to take a walk on the hills she rarely crossed the threshold of home though her feeling for the people round her was benevolent intercourse with them she never sought nor with very few exceptions ever experienced and yet she knew them knew their ways their language their family histories she could hear of them with interest and talk of them with detail minute graphic and accurate but with them she rarely exchanged a word. Hence it ensued that what her mind had gathered of the real concerning them was too exclusively confined to those tragic and terrible traits of which, in listening to the secret annals of every rude vicinage, the memory is sometimes compelled to receive the impress. Her imagination, which was a spirit more sombre than sunny, more powerful than sportive, found in such traits materials whence it wrought creations like Heathcliff, like Earnshaw, like Catherine. Having formed these beings, she did not know what she had done. If the auditors of her work, when read in manuscript, 
shuddered under the grinding influence of nature so relentless and implacable of spirits so lost and fallen if it was complained that the mere hearing of certain vivid and fearful scenes banished sleep by night and disturbed mental peace by day ellis bell would wonder what was meant and suspect the complainant of affectation had she but lived her mind would of itself have grown like a strong tree loftier straighter wider spreading and its matured fruits would have attained a mellower ripening and a sunnier bloom but on that mind time and experience alone could work to the influence of other intellects it was not amenable yet no human being is wholly free none wholly independent of surroundings and emily bronte least of all could claim such immunity we can with difficulty just imagine her a prosperous heiress loving and loved high-spirited and even hoydenish but with her cavalier fantasy informed by a gracious splendor all her own we can just imagine emily bronte as shirley kildar but scarcely surely keeled our riding wuthering heights emily bronte away from her moors her loneliness her poverty her discipline her companionship with genius violence and degradation would have taken another colour as hydrangeas grow now red now blue according to the nature of the soil it was not her lack of knowledge of the world that made the novel she wrote become wuthering heights not her inexperience but rather her experience limited and perverse indeed and specialized by a most singular temperament yet close and very real her imagination was as much inspired by the circumstances of her life as was anne's when she wrote the tenant of wildfell hall or charlotte's in her masterpiece villette but as in each case the imagination was of a different quality experience acting upon it produced a distinct and dissimilar result a result obtained no less from the contrariety than by the harmony of circumstance for our surroundings affect us in two ways subtly and permanently tinging us through and through as wine tinges water or by some violent neighbourhood of antipathetic force sending us off at a tangent as far as possible from the antagonistic presence that so detestably environs us the fact that charlotte bronte knew chiefly clergymen is largely responsible for shirley that satirical eulogy of the church and apotheosis of sunday-school teachers but emily living in this same clerical evangelistic atmosphere is revolted forced to the other extreme and while sheltering her true opinions from herself under the all-embracing term broad church we find in her writings no belief so strong as the belief in the present use and glory of life no love so great as her love for earth earth the mother and grave no assertion of immortality but a deep certainty of rest there is no note so often struck in all her work and struck with such variety of emphasis as this that good for goodness's sake is desirable evil for evil's sake detestable and that for the just and the unjust alike there is rest in the grave this quiet clergyman's daughter always hearing evil of dissenters has therefore from pure courage and revolted justice become a dissenter herself 
a dissenter in more ways than one never was a nature more sensitive to the stupidities and narrowness of conventional opinion a nature more likely to be found in the ranks of the opposition and with such a nature indignation is the force that most often looses the gate of speech the impulse to reveal wrongs and sufferings as they really are is overwhelmingly strong although the revelation itself be imperfect what then would this inexperienced yorkshire parson's daughter reveal the unlikeness of life to the authorized pictures of life the force of evil only conquerable by the slow revolving process of nature which admits not the eternal duration of the perverse the grim and fearful lessons of heredity the sufficiency of the finite to the finite of life to life with no other reward than the conduct of life fulfils to him that lives the all-penetrating kinship of living things heather sprig singing lark confident child relentless tyrant and not least not least to her already in its shadow the sure and universal peace of death a strange evangel from such a preacher but a faith ever more emphasized and deeply rooted in emily's mind by her incapacity to acquiesce to the stiff pragmatic teaching the narrow prejudice of the calvinists of haworth yet this very calvinism influenced her ideas this doctrine she so passionately rejected calling herself a disciple of the tolerant and thoughtful frederick maurice and writing in defiance of its flames and shriekings the most soothing consolations to mortality that i remember in our tongue nevertheless so dual-natured is the force of environment this antagonistic faith repelling her to the extreme rebound of belief did not send her out from it before she had assimilated some of its sternest tenets from this doctrine of reward and punishment she learned that for every unchecked evil tendency there is a fearful expiation though she placed it not indeed in the flames of hell but in the perverted instincts of our own children terrible theories of doomed incurable sin and predestined loss warned her that an evil stock will only beget contamination the children of the mad must be liable to madness the children of the depraved bent towards depravity the seed of the poison plant springs up to blast and ruin only to be overcome by uprooting and sterilization or by the judicious grafting the patient training of many years this prejudiced and evangelical haworth had prepared the woman who rejected its hebraic dogma to find out for herself the underlying truths she accepted them in their full significance it has been laid as a blame to her that she nowhere shows any proper abhorrence of the fiendish and vindictive heathcliff she who reveals him remembers the dubious parentage of that forsaken seaport baby lascar or gypsy she remembers the ishmael idish childhood too much loved and hated of the little interloper whose hand was against every man's hand remembering this she submits as patiently to his swarthy soul and savage instincts as to his swarthy skin and gibberish that nobody could understand from thistles you gather no grapes no use 
she seems to be saying in waiting for the children of evil parents to grow of their own will and unassisted straight and noble the very quality of their will is as inherited as their eyes and hair heathcliff is no fiend or goblin the untrained doomed child of some half-savage sailor's holiday violent and treacherous and how far shall we hold the sinner responsible for a nature which is itself the punishment of some forefather's crime even for such there must be rest no possibility in the just and reverent mind of emily bronte that the god whom she believed to be the very fount and soul of life could condemn to everlasting fire the victims of morbid tendencies not chosen by themselves no purgatory and no everlasting flame is needed to purify the sins of heathcliff his grave on the hillside will grow as green as any other spot of grass moor sheep will find the grass as sweet heath and harebells will grow of the same colour on it as over a baby's grave for life and sin and punishment and with death to the dying man he slips his burden then on to other shoulders and no visions mar his rest i wondered how any one could ever imagine unquiet slumbers for the sleepers in that quiet earth so ends the last page of wuthering heights so much for the theories of life and evil that the clash of circumstance and character struck out from emily bronte it happened as we know that she had occasion to test these theories and but for that she could never have written wuthering heights not that the story the conception would have failed after all there is nothing more appalling in the violent history of that upland farm than many a midland manor set thick in elms many a wild country house of wales or cornwall could unfold stories more socially painful than the mere brute violence of the earnshaws of madness and treachery stories of girls entrapped unwillingly into a lunatic marriage that the estate might have an heir legends of fearful violence of outcast children dishonoured wives horrible and persistent evil who in the secret places of his memory stores not up such haunting gossip and emily familiar with all the wild stories of haworth for a century back and nursed on grisly irish horrors tales of seventeen ninety eight tales of oppression and misery emily with all this eerie lore at her finger-tips would have the less difficulty in combining and working the separate motives into a consistent whole that she did not know the real people whose history she knew by heart no memory of individual manner dominance or preference for an individual type caught and disarranged her theories her conception being the completer from her ignorance this much her strong reason and her creative power enabled her to effect but this is not all this is the plot but to make a character speak act rave love live die through a whole lifetime of events even as the readers feel convinced he must have acted must have lived and died this demands at least so much experience of a somewhat similar nature as may serve for a base to one's imagination a reserve of certainty and reassurance on which to draw in times of perplexity and doubt branwell who sat to anne sorrily enough for the portrait of henry huntingdon served his sister emily not indeed as a model a thing to copy 
but as a chart of proportions by which to measure and to which to refer for correct investiture the inspired idea mr weems reed whose great knowledge of the bronte history and still greater kindness in admitting me to his advantages as much as might be i cannot sufficiently acknowledge this capable critic perceives a bona fide resemblance between the character of heathcliff and the character of branwell bronte as he appeared to his sister emily so much bearing in mind the verse concerning the leveret i own i cannot see branwell seems to me more clearly akin to heathcliff's miserable son than to heathcliff but that in depicting heathcliff's outrageous thwarted love for catherine emily did draw upon her experience of her brother's suffering this extract from an unpublished lecture of mr reed's will sufficiently reveal it was in the enforced companionship of this lost and degraded man that emily received i am sure many of the impressions which were subsequently conveyed to the pages of her book has it not been said over and over again by critics of every kind that wuthering heights reads like the dream of an opium-eater and here we find that during the whole time of the writing of the book an habitual and avowed opium-eater was at emily's elbow i said that perhaps the most striking part of wuthering heights was that which deals with the relations of heathcliff and catherine after she had become the wife of another whole pages of the story are filled with the ravings and ragings of the villain against the man whose life stands between him and the woman he loves similar ravings are to be found in all the letters of branwell bronte written at this period of his career and we may be sure that similar ravings were always on his lips as moody and more than half mad he wandered about the rooms of the parsonage at haworth nay i have found some striking verbal coincidences between branwell's own language and passages in wuthering heights in one of his own letters there are these words in reference to the object of his passion my own life without her will be hell what can the so-called love of her wretched sickly husband be to her compared with mine now turn to wuthering heights and you will read these words two words would comprehend my future death and hell existence after losing her would be hell yet i was a fool to fancy for a moment that she valued edgar linton's attachment more than mine if he loved with all the powers of his puny being he couldn't love in eighty years as much as i could in a day so much share in wuthering heights branwell certainly had he was a page of the book in which his sister studied he served as to an artist's temperament all things unconsciously serve for the rough block of granite out of which the work is hewn and even while with difficulty enduring his vices emily undoubtedly learned from them those darker secrets of humanity necessary to her tragic incantation they served her those dreaded passionate outbreaks of her brothers even as the moors she loved the fancy she courted served her strange divining wand of genius that conjures gold out of the miriest earth of common life strange and terrible faculty laying up its stores and half mechanically drawing its own profit out of our slightest or most miserable experiences noting the gesture with which the mother hears of her son's ruin catching the faint varying shadow that the white wind-shaken window-blind 
sends over the dead face by which we watch, drawing its life from a thousand deaths, humiliations, losses, with a hand in our sharpest joys and bitterest sorrows. This faculty was Emily Bronte's, and drew its profit from her brother's shame. Here ended Branwell's share in producing Wuthering Heights, but it is not well to ignore his claim to its entire authorship, for in the contemptuous silence of those who know their falsity such slanders live and thrive like unclean insects under fallen stones. The vain boast of an unprincipled dreamer, half mad with opium, half drunk with gin, meaning nothing but the desire to be admired at any cost, has been given too much prominence by those lovers of sensation who prefer any startling lie to an old truth. Their ranks have been increased by the number of those who, ignorant of the true circumstances of Emily's life, found it impossible that an inexperienced girl could portray so much violence and such morbid passion. On the contrary, given these circumstances, none but a personally inexperienced girl could have treated the subject with the absolute and sexless purity which we find in Wuthering Heights. How infect, commonplace, and ignominious would Branwell, relying on his own recollections, have made the thwarted passion of a violent adventurer for a woman whose sickly husband both despise. That purity, as of polished steel, as cold and harder than ice, that freedom in dealing with love and hate, as audacious as an infant's love for the bright flame of fire, could only belong to one whose intensity of genius was rivaled by the narrowness of her experience, an experience limited not only by circumstances, but by a nature impervious to any fierier sentiment than the natural love of home and her own people, beginning before remembrance and as unconscious as breathing. The critic, having Emily's poems and the few remaining verses and letters of Branwell, cannot doubt the incapacity of that unnerved and garrulous prodigal to produce a work of art so sustained, passionate, and remote. For in no respect does the terse, fiery, imaginative style of Emily resemble the weak, disconnected, now vulgar, now pretty mannerisms of Branwell. There is indeed scant evidence that the writer of Emily's poems could produce Wuthering Heights, but there is at any rate the impossibility that her work could be void of fire, concentration, and wild fancy. As great an impossibility as that vulgarity and tawdriness should not obtrude their ugly heads here and there from under Branwell's finest phrases, and since there is no single, vulgar, trite, or macabre-like effusion throughout Wuthering Heights, and since Heathcliff's passion is never once treated in the despicable would-be worldly fashion in which Branwell describes his own sensations, and since at the time that Wuthering Heights was written he was manifestly and by his own confession too physically prostrate for any literary effort, we may conclude that Branwell did not write the book. On the other side, we have not only the literary evidence of the similar qualities in Wuthering Heights and in the poems of Ellis Bell, but the express and reiterated assurance of Charlotte Bronte, who never even dreamed, it would seem, that it could be supposed her brother wrote the book, the testimony of the publishers who made their treaty with Ellis Bell, of the servant Martha, who saw her mistress writing it, and most convincingly of all, 
to those who have appreciated the character of emily bronte the impossibility that a spirit so upright and so careless of fame should commit a miserable fraud to obtain it indeed so baseless is this despicable rumour that to attack it seems absurd only sometimes it is wise to risk an absurdity puny insects left too long unhurt may turn out dangerous enemies irretrievably damaging the fertile vine on which they fastened in the security of their minuteness to the three favouring circumstances of emily's masterpiece which we have already mentioned the neighbourhood of her home the character of her disposition the quality of her experience a fourth must be added inferior in degree and yet not absolutely unimportant this is her acquaintance with german literature and especially with hoffmann's tales in emily bronte's day romance and germany had one significance it is true that in london and in prose the german influence was dying out but in distant haworth and in the writings of such poets as emily would read in scott in southey most of all in coleridge with whose poems her own have so distinct an affinity it is still predominant of the materialistic influence of italy of atheist shelley byron with his audacity and realism sensuous keats she would have little experience in her remote parsonage and had she known them they would probably have made no impression on a nature only susceptible to kindred influences thackeray her sister's hero might have never lived for all the trace of him we find in emily's writings never is there any single allusion in her work to the most eventful period of her life that sight of the lusher fields and taller realms of middle england that glimpse of hurrying vast london that night on the river the sun slipping behind the masts doubly large through the mists and smoke in which the houses bridges ships are all spectral and dim no hint of this nor of the sea nor of belgium with its quaint foreign life nor yet of that french style and method so carefully impressed upon her by m Heger, and which so decidedly moulded her elder sister's art but in the midst of her business at haworth we catch a glimpse of her reading her german book at night as she sits on the hearth-rug with her arm around keeper's neck glancing at it in the kitchen where she is making bread with the volume of her choice propped up before her and by the style of the novel jotted down in the rough almost simultaneously with her reading we know that to her the study of german was not like french and music the mere necessary acquirement of a governess but an influence that entered her mind and helped to shape the fashion of her thoughts so much preface is necessary to explain not the genius of emily bronte but the conditions of that genius there is no use saying more the aim of my writing has been missed if the circumstances of her career are not present in the mind of my reader it is too late at this point to do more than enumerate them and briefly point to their significance such criticism in face of the living work is all too much like glancing in a green and beautiful country at a map from which one may indeed ascertain the roads that lead to it and away and the size of the place in relation to surrounding districts but which can give no recognizable likeness of the scene which lies all around us with its fresh life forgotten and its beauty disregarded therefore let us make an end of theory and turn to the book on which our heroine's fame is stationed fronting eternity 
it may be that in unravelling its story and noticing the manner in which its facts of character and circumstance impressed her mind we may for a moment be admitted to a more thorough and clearer insight into its working than we could earn by the completest study of external evidence the most earnest and sympathizing criticism End of chapter 14